Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we are going to hear about the book Sexual Politics by Kate Millett and it's being discussed by Marian Rutigliano. So welcome Marian and over to you. Hi, good morning. Um, reading from very cold Maryland, USA. Um, Sexual Politics by Kate Millett was published in 1970. It was based on her PhD dissertation at Columbia University in New York City, and it was the first feminist book I ever read. I was 15 years old when I read it, and I'm very glad about that because the book is a primer, the primer, really, of radical feminism. For if if you've ever heard someone say, you know, you, you don't decide what radical feminine, feminism is, what, that's gatekeeping, um, this book, this, this, you know, Kate Millett basically she was the one who, who created, who invented radical feminism in a way. Um, this, she was one of the first women who first got it and put together the pieces of what so many other women ultimately saw and understood as the class analysis that explains men's oppression over women. You may hear a lot of things that sound very familiar and say, well, yeah, we all know that. But in 1970, um, we didn't all know that. And Kate Millett picked out the relevant things connected the dots and created the first best conception of radical feminism, in my opinion, um, definitely a standout at the time. Um, so I'm going to use her words a lot, reading them as much as possible because the book is so well-written. There are also um, large portions of the book. This book is is had been taught sometimes when there were still women's studies as a separate course all by itself. And there's um, this places where there are pages, you know, five, 10 pages of, of history, um, talking about mythologies, you know, various world mythologies um, over history um, in, term, uh, in terms of uh, what patriarchy is. And so this is not going to be, you know, history names and dates. Um, but what does she have to say about the book itself? She says, before the reader is shunted through the relatively uncharted, often even hypothetical territory, which lies before him, used him instead of her, <laughs> it is perhaps only fair he be equipped with some general notion of the terrain. The first part of this essay is devoted to the proposition that sex has a frequently neglected political aspect. I have attempted to illustrate this, first of all, by giving attention to the role which concepts of power and domination play in some contemporary liter literary descriptions of sexual activity itself. That's really, that was that was huge then. Um, sex and power, domination, nobody was saying that back then, or almost nobody was saying it back then. Um, and she says these random examples, um, and she gives random examples at first, which we'll talk about, um, are followed by a chapter analyzing the social relationship between the sexes from a theoretical standpoint. The second chapter, in my opinion, is the most important in the book and far and away the most difficult to write because it attempts to formulate a systematic overview of patriarchy as a political institution. And the second section, you know, chapters three and four are largely historical, outlining the great transformation in the traditional relationship between the sexes, which took place in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and then giving an account of the climate of reaction, which later sets in assuring the continuation of a modified patriarchal way of life, and frustrating the possibility of revolutionary social change in this area for some three decades. The later chapters of the book focus specifically upon the work of three figures I take to be representative of this latter period, three authors. Um, so 
she first talks about um, instances of sexual politics. How does this happen? You know, what are examples of it? And she starts with um, the author, uh, Henry Miller. Um, Henry Miller was a 20th century American writer. He wrote novels, short stories, and essays. And he wrote a lot about sex, kind of a lot, a lot about sex. Um, he, uh, his, his books were initially banned in the United States. Um, she uh, quotes a, um, a passage from his book, Sexus, S-E-X-U-S. And it's uh, a scene where he is in the bathtub at a friend's house. The friend has left for work for the day, and the friend's wife is stuck waiting on him in the tub. Um, can we have the first slide, please? And this is, um, he, he talks about having, a, a, he asked her to, um, to fillet him, to, you know, um, perform oral sex on him. Um, it's implied that he also anally penetrated her. Um, and she, you know, he describes her capitulation and submission, um, saying that, that, uh, um, that she just uh, happened so, that it happened so quickly, she didn't have time to rebel um, or even to pretend to rebel, since the entire scene is a description, not so much of sexual intercourse, but rather of intercourse in the service of power. Rebel is a highly charged word. And, okay. I'm sorry, I'm uh, trying to keep reading and uh, here we go. All right. Um, and this was this was really I mean nobody had connected these two before um, that that uh, connecting sex and power that sex was all about power and it just it was something that like where did that come from that's odd that's that's you know nobody thinks like that um, so it was it was considered to be you know something that that nobody had connected before we connect it now but this was new this was new then um, she, she um, to say that. Sex um, is intricately linked with power. Um, it is is was we take it for granted now, and I'm just kind of stumbling because I want to get this across um, in everything that she wrote. That things we look at and say, "Well, yeah," um, nobody was saying that at the time. Um, that these that they were inextricably linked. And then there is more, you know, hum primarily humiliating sex acts, and he commands. She never says a word. Um, eventually her husband finds out and he, um, he, 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 um, starts a, uh, like a, a program of what we would call BDSM on her, very violent, very humiliating. So that was, um, Henry Miller. Then there's a passage from Norman Mailer, who's, um, who wrote a book called An American Dream. Um, and it was a passage about sodomizing a woman after murdering his own wife. Um, the theme of the book is, is sodomy and his claim that women enjoy it. Um, the entire book is about the forceful sexual abuse of women. Um, next slide, please. The um, uh, the 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 book is really uh, um, uh, you know, she says uh, an exercise on how to kill your wife and be happy ever after. The reader is given to understand that by murdering one woman and buggering another, Rojak became a man. Rojak, the protagonist, is uh, is Rojak. Um, Rojak 
she says, belongs to the oldest ruling class in the world. And here's that word class. We talk about radical feminism being a class analysis. Nobody was saying that back then. Um, this was a this was a, a tremendous insight. Um, the oldest ruling class in the world, and like one of Faulkner's ancient retainers of a lost cause, he is making his stand on the preservation of a social hierarchy that sees itself as threatened with extinction. His partial Jewish ancestry and his liberal views to the contrary, Rojak is the last surviving white man as conquering hero. Mailer's An American Dream is a rally is a rallying cry um, for, for a sexual politics in which diplomacy has failed and war is the last political resort of a ruling caste that feels its position in deadly peril. A ruling class, a ruling class um, is, presupposes a hierarchy. Um, the, the class can't get what they want politically with diplomacy, so they use the politics of force. The most threatening force to the class they want to rule, women, is sex. Force, domination, violation, humiliation, really the foundations of male socialized sexuality, domination and violation. And then the final author he talks about is uh, Jean Genet, um, us Americans would just call him Jean. Um, he wrote an autobiographical novel called The Thief's Journal um, in 1949 or 50, I think it was. And And she writes that um, uh, that the, the the question what what Genet is doing in his autobiographical novel it's the first passage um, in which the author identify uh, author's identification is with the female figure. Um, Jean Genet was was homosexual, and in his book he is both male and female, young, poor, a criminal, and a beggar. He was also initially the despised drag queen. The maricone, which is a, um, a you know word for um, what was then called faggot, um, contemptible because he was the female partner in homosexual acts. Older, when he got older, distinguished by fame, wealth, and and was secure, he became a male, though never ascending to the full elevation of the pimp or super male. Sexual role is not a matter of biological identity, but of class or caste. In the hierarchical homosexual society projected in Genet's novels, because of the perfection with which they ape and exaggerate the masculine and feminine of heterosexual society, his homosexual characters represent the best contemporary insight into its constitution and beliefs. Granted that their caricature is grotesque, and Genet himself is fully aware of the morbidity of this pastiche, his homosexuals nonetheless have unerringly penetrated to the essence of what heterosexual society imagines to be the character of masculine and feminine, and which it mistakes for the nature of male and female, thereby preserving the traditional relation of the sexes. Um, this is, she's talking about gender. I mean, she's talking about, um, you know, this homosexual society that he describes in his book, um, picking out, picking, sex scenes. Um, Mailer was taught in high school, somebody saying in the, um, they didn't, you know, they left out the sex scenes, but we all read them. Um, but Janae is talking about how homosexual society reflects heterosexual society. And the, and the, the defining fact of that was that 
um, there is masculine and there is feminine and they are separate roles. Um, and if you are, um, uh, you know, younger, if you are on the bottom, um, you are in the female role. Um, and if you are um, older and wiser and you are, are on the top, you are in the male role. Does that sound familiar? Um, that's, we're hearing that now and you're just like, well, yeah, we know that. And this is what, um, this is what is driving uh, um, a lot of uh, young people into uh, saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm not really a girl or I'm not really a boy. Um, and she knew, she knew um, and saw this in Janae's writings. Um, next slide. Janae um, found this odious, um, but, but being masculine or the top um, was knew he uh, was how he felt fulfilled as a male. He even said, um, "My cock is worth its weight in gold." At other times, he boasts that he can lift a heavy man on the end of it. Um, Armand, the character in his book, automatically associated sexuality with power, with his solitary pleasure, and with the pain and humiliation of his partner, who is nothing but an object to him in the most literal sense. Intercourse is an assertion of mastery, one that announces his own higher caste and proves it upon a victim who is expected to surrender, serve, and be satisfied. Um, yeah, I, I know Andrea Dworkin read this book. She mentioned it someplace um, and wrote a book called Intercourse, which is, I mean, everything everything that uh, Millette said um, can be expanded. Um, there's so much in it. And Dworkin wrote a book called Intercourse. Um, this stuff, again, may seem typical or even tame compared to what is out there now in terms of, uh, you know, pornography. Um, and it's not just, it was just in print then and now it's, you know, visual and online and consumed by far more people. Um, the thing to realize here is is uh, not so much that um, Millet found this stuff, um, but, but that a uh, few people, very few people were, were noticing this. Um, to mark the oppression of women as a class was not a unique conclusion. That much was obvious, though with few exceptions, not palatable to most men and was therefore denied. But women who saw with clarity saw that all women are oppressed as a class. <clears throat> we might, might not take much notice of intercourse in the service of power, sense of power as a male forcibly sodomizing a woman, maintaining a superior class status with sexual behavior, and associating sexuality with power. <clears throat> but women who could shed the attachment to men as beloved protectors could also see clearly that our oppression as women was at the hand of men as a class who are the oppressors. So what she said and wrote about, all those things, intercourse on the service of power, the sense of power as a male, um, superior class status, using sexuality, and associating sexuality with power, we say now we say yes, of course. Um, but at the time, this was new. Her books, oh, these books, um, Mailer, um, uh, Janae, um, and uh, um, Henry Miller, um, won critical acclaim from mostly male critics and reviewers. Uh, although they were banned in many places in the U.S. and somewhat elsewhere, somebody mentioned this having um, having been taught in high schools and the. Um, the more sexual stuff wasn't necessarily taught. There were um, some books where it wasn't quite so, um, where, where it wasn't 
um, didn't uh, take up the entire book. And I remember um, having uh, um, books that just um, when I was in high school um, that had just passages from uh, from these guys. The sexual activities at the time were called smut, which was the more commonly used term then until the term pornography became more widely used. Um, but even so, no one paid much attention um, to those insights that uh, that Millette had intercourse in the service of power, sense of power as, you know, as male forcibly um, uh, sexually sexualizing women, um, sodomy and so forth. Um, no one took much notice of maintaining class status with sexual behavior or associating sexuality with power. And no one had tried to figure out if and how any of it explained the relationship between men as a class and women as a class. That's what this book is about. That's, this is what Kate Millett did. Next slide, please. All right. So she says that these three instances of sexual description, these books that we've examined so far, were remarkable for the large part which notions of ascendancy and power played within them. Coitus can scarcely be said to take place in a vacuum, although of itself it appears a biological and physical activity, it is set so deeply within the larger context of human affairs that it serves as a charged microcosm of the variety of attitudes and values to which culture subscribes. Among other things, it may serve as a model of sexual politics on an individual or personal plane. But of course, the transition from such scenes of intimacy to a wider context of political reference is a great step indeed. In introducing the term sexual politics, one must first answer the inevitable question. Can the relationship between the sexes be viewed in a political light at all? The answer depends on how one defines politics. This essay does not define the political as that relatively narrow and exclusive world of meetings, chairmen, and parties. The term politics shall refer to power-structured relationships, arrangements whereby one group of persons is controlled by another. Um, and the concept of control, again, is something that we, you know, we say, well, you know, we take that for granted now. Um, this, was, this was really enlightening. This was um, a tremendous leap that, that she made that that at the time, those of us who were reading it, and remember I'm reading this in what, 1970, um, connected um, the relationship between men and women in terms of, of power. Um, domination uh, was the possibility of imposing one's will upon the behavior of other persons. She says that... Um, she will try to prove that sex is a status category with political implications and that it and that she will have to look at power relationships um she says that uh she will define all this on the grounds of personal contact and interaction between members of well-defined and coherent groups races castes class and sexes for it is precisely because certain groups have no representation in a number of recognized political structures that their position tends to be so stable, their oppression so continuous. She saw how women had essentially no power, the same as other oppressed groups, and that's why the condition of women 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500, 1,000 years ago remained so stable. Um, 
She notes that um, there are groups who rule by birthright and that they were fast disappearing and true, there were no pharaohs anymore and, um, and such, but um, that there, but there was and remained one ancient and universal scheme for the domination of one birth group by another, the scheme that prevails in the area of sex. The situation between the sexes now is a relationship of dominance and subordination, um, which is essentially sex, a sexual dominion um, and is the most fundamental concept of power because our society is a patriarchy. And again, we we use the term patriarchy really frequently, um, but to, to use this to describe the relationship between the sexes, that it was domination um, and that it had something to do, this 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 politics had something to do with sex was, was uh, again, a tremendous insight. So the principles of patriarchy that she recommend that she recognizes that males shall dominate females um, and that elder males or stronger males dominate younger or weaker males. Very, very sexualized. She, um, she quotes uh, uh, Hannah Arendt when she's talking about the ideological underpinnings of this. Uh, excuse me, I have a cold. Um, the ideological underpinnings of um, uh, of this sexual politics. Hannah Arendt has observed that government is upheld by power, supported either through consent or imposed through violence. Conditioning to an ideology amounts to the former. Sexual politics obtains consent through the socialization of both sexes to basic patriarchal politics with regard to temperament, role, and status. And those three terms are used um, uh, frequently uh, um, throughout the, the rest of this, this section. Temperament, role, and power that are socialization, is conditioning, and we are socialized or conditioned into specific um, uh, characteristics of temperament, role, and status. Um, the first item, temperament, involves the formation of human personality along stereotyped lines of sex category, masculine, feminine, based on the needs and values of the dominant group and dictated by what its members cherish in themselves and find, con find convenient in subordinates. In other words, um, men will um, decide what characteristics should belong to males and what should belong to females based on what is convenient for them. When, um, when people say that, when, and many women will say men can be educated out of male socialization and out of male domination, um, this, it, it becomes fairly clear. It's like, no, they can't. Why would they ever? They're, they're getting everything they want out of it because they created it. Um, female socialization is really a part of, of male socialization. Male socialization wants domination and violation. And the way to get it um, is by the consent of the people they want it from by imposing female socialization. Uh, the second factor, sex role, um, is a code of conduct, gesture, and attitude for each sex. In, in, um, in terms of activity, sex role assigns domestic service and attendance upon infants to the female. And the whole rest of human achievement, interest, and ambition is assigned to the male. This limited role allotted to the female tends to arrest her at the level of biological experience. Therefore, nearly all that can be described as distinctly human rather than animal activity, you know, giving birth and caring for the young, 
is largely reserved for the male. And then the uh, the third factor is um is status, which you know follows follows from that. Um, those awarded higher status tend to adopt the roles of mastery largely because they are first encouraged to develop temperaments of dominance. She uh, looks at, um, and this is all what we call gender. Um, we're calling this gender now. Um, this is what we call gender. Um, it, we The term used to be sexual stereotypes, which I really kind of like a lot better. Um, it, you know, so that when we talk about gender, um, you know, in this way, as sexual stereotypes, it's without the queer theory newspeak before, you know, the performativeness that Judith Butler talked about. Um, biologically, um, there's a there's a biological underpinning as well um, to uh, to all this patriarchal religion, popular attitude, and to some degree, the social sciences assume these psychosocial distinctions rest upon biological differences between the sexes, so that where culture is is, is acknowledged as shaping behavior, it is said to do no more than cooperate with nature. Yet the temper temperamental distinctions created in patriarchy, masculine and feminine personality traits do not appear to originate in human nature. Um, and those of role and status still less. She uh, says that the, the most impressive evidence when she's talking about, you know, why do, why do we think it's biological? That people look at, um, you know, uh, the creative force, um, you know, in, in the visible birth of children, that is something of a miraculous event. And if you've ever seen it or, or done it, <laughs> um, it is pretty miraculous. Um, and it is possible that um, circumstance which might drastically redirect such attitudes would be the discovery of paternity. Um, you know, we don't know what primitive people thought, um, you know, until they figured out um, how childbirth happened and put it together with, um, oh, there's um, the the male has something to do with it. There is some evidence that fertility cults in ancient society at some point took a turn toward paternity, displacing and downgrading female function and procreation and attributing the power of life to the phallus alone. Patriarchal religion cons could consolidate this position by the creation of a male god or gods demoting, discrediting, or eliminating goddesses and constructing a theology whose basic postulates are male supremacist and one of whose central functions is to uphold and validate the patriarchal structure. So if men are, you know, busy, men are physically larger and stronger, but that's not really a factor in politics, is it? Um, women giving birth um, is a, a biological function and that's not really or you know that, that by nature is not um really a political thing but it's made political um so there is really insufficient evidence that the social distinctions of patriarchy status sex roles temperament are physical the only way to tell really if there are real differences in the sexes is if they're treated exactly alike which they're obviously not um there was um some research even then showing that the core gender identity was established by 18 months. So again, she differentiates um, what we understand now um, that um, that 
Sex is biology, male and female, and gender is psychological, or therefore cultural, um, and comprises this masculinity and femininity, femininity, and that these are independent of each other. Biology is not the same as gender. <coughs> and she, uh, she says, because of our social circumstances, Male and female are really two cultures and their life experiences are utterly different. And this is crucial. This is crucial because implicit in all of the gender identity development which takes place through childhood is the sum total of the parents, the peers, and the culture's notions of what is appropriate to each gender by way of temperament, character, interest, status, worth, gesture, and expression. Every moment of the child's life is a clue to how he or she must think and behave to attain or satisfy the demands which gender places upon one. In adolescence, the merciless task of conformity grows to crisis proportions, generally cooling and settling in maturity. Um, this is uh, so prescient in terms of what we see as the, uh, um, as, as the, the root cause. And radical and radical feminism means getting to the root. <clears throat> this is the root cause of why kids say, Am I really a boy? Am I really a girl? Um, and and why uh, many of us grow up thinking that this is what I need to do because this is what it is to be a woman. And it's just, this is the way women are, or this is the way men are. Um, Millette saw that this was, that this was completely cultural, um, that it was gender and that it was not biological. To take a simple example, expectations the culture cherishes about um, his gender identity, enc encourage the young male to develop aggressive impulses and the female to thwart her own or turn them inward. Data from physical sciences has recently been enlisted again to support sociological arguments and a genetic justification of patriarchy. <clears throat> um, she talks about a couple of scientists and their work and that um, their evidence of inherent trait is patriarchal history and organization, and their pretensions to physical evidence, therefore, are both specious and circular. One can only advance genetic evidence when one has genetic evidence to enhance rather than historical evidence. So when we say, let's look back at the history of patriarchy to prove that um, that these differences between men and women are just just the way men are, just the way women are, there's um that's a, a facetious um, logical <laughs> attempt at uh, logical argument. Um, she looks at sociological um, uh, sociological reasons for why this um, why this happens. The you know that we're socialized into temperament, role, and status, and notes that. Um, Patriarchy's chief institution is the family. Um, the family controls, um, affects control and conformity to sex roles, um, and it promotes fathers as head of the house. She notes that female heads of household tend to be regarded as undesirable. <clears throat> Traditionally, patriarchy granted the father nearly total ownership over wife or wives and children, including the powers of physical abuse and often even those of murder and sale. Classically, as head of the family, the father is both begetter and owner in a system in which kinship is property. 
The chief contribution of the family in patriarchy is the socialization of the young, largely through the example and admonition of their parents. Socializing into patriarchy, patriarchal ideologies prescribed attitudes towards the categories of role, temperament, and status. Although slight differences of definition depend here upon the parents' grasp of cultural values, the general effect of uniformity is achieved to be further reinforced through peers, schools, media, and other leading sources, formal and informal. While we, we may niggle over the balance of authority between the personalities of various households, one must remember that the entire culture supports masculine authority in all areas of life and outside the home permits the female none at all. Um, it um, is a little uh, heartbreaking when um, mothers who really try very, very hard say that they um, that they raise their sons differently and they will not be like other men. Um, doing that may help make a man, uh, make a son, you know, eventually grow into a relatively decent human being. But everything else in the world, everything, as soon as he walks out the door, is um, saying the opposite of whatever um, you may try to teach your son in the home. Um, and that's something that um, that Millette made reference to and, uh, and understood. Um, next slide, please. It is, um, here we go, it is in the area of class that the caste-like status of the female within patriarchy is most liable to confusion. For sexual status often operates in a superficially confusing way within the variable of class. In a society where status is dependent upon the economic, social, and educational circumstances of class, it is possible for certain females to appear to stand higher than some males. Some women can make a, you know, a relatively good deal for themselves in patriarchy. Yet, when one looks more closely at the subject, that's not the case. And this is perhaps easier to see by means of analogy. A black doctor or lawyer has higher social status than a poor white sharecropper. But race, itself a caste system which subsumes class, persuades the latter citizen that he belongs to a higher order of life, just as it oppresses, oppresses the black professional in spirit, whatever his material success may be. In, in much the same manner, a truck driver or butcher always has his manhood to fall back upon. Should his final vanity be offended, he may contemplate more violent methods. And again, she notes that primarily um, this hierarchy is, um, is imposed by, by the consent um, of the uh, class on the bottom of the hierarchy. Um, Gene Sharp, um, in his you know, book on, on nonviolent action, notes that people obey. I mean that that dictatorships um, and oppressors mostly consult mostly um, uh, rule with the consent of the people they oppress. Um, they don't have to be violent that often. It only has to be occasional to create enough fear. Um, and and Millette um, recognizes this as well um, that it is with um, women's consent. The concept she also talks about the concept of romantic love affords a meaning, a means of emotional manipulation, which the male is free to exploit since love is the only circumstance in which the female is, at least ideologically, hardened for sexual activity. And this um, goes along with why um, patriarchy in the US um, gave women the so-called gift of abortion. Um, they wanted willing to be more, more willing to have 
sex with men, because one of the major risks, pregnancy was now off the table, meant that more women could be manipulated and exploited. One of the chief effects of this class within patriarchy is to set one woman against another. Um, we, we, we talk now about, you know, horizontal hostility. Um, Millet um, saw it where, I mean, this, you know, when she, when she wrote this, when she said this, it was like this huge, enormous light bulb moment. Nobody was saying this. Um, she, well, very few people were saying this, and she picked this stuff out. It is possible to argue, she says, that women tend to transcend the usual class stratifications in patriarchy. For whatever the class of her birth and education, the female has fewer permanent class association than does the male. Economic dependency renders her affiliations with any class a tangential, vicarious, and temporary matter. And as far back as Aristotle, it was observed that the only slave to whom a commoner might lay claim was his woman. So, so women identify their own survival with the prosperity of those who feed them. That that sounds that sounds terrible, but um, read it again. Um, women identifying their own survival with the prosperity of those who feed them. The hope of seeking liberating radical solutions of their own seems too remote for the majority to dare contemplate, and remains so until consciousness on the subject is raised. Um, this basically lit a match to the second wave. Um, this is this is why the you know the major fundamental strategies um, of the second wave in using this theory, um, radical feminism, um, to change the world for women included consciousness raising groups um, and concrete solutions to allow women to not have to to care at all um, about the prosperity of those who feed them. This is why it included things like equal pay, um, more jobs, um, more avenues of, of employment open to women, checking accounts and credit cards, childcare at work, domestic violent refuge, refuges, things to eliminate economic dependency. So she goes on to talk about the uh, economic and educational um, aspects of, uh, of, our, of our socialization and that one of the most efficient branches of patriarchal government lies in the agency of its economic hold over its female subject. Um, women have, were, you know, women's work um, in most of the world from most of history, including often now is not, is not paid for or is paid a fraction of men's worth, even for the same jobs. Um, women have been cheap labor in factory, lower grade service and clerical positions, wages and, and tasks. Um, so unremunerative that uh, it fails to threaten patriarchy financially or psychologically. Women who are employed um, have two jobs since the burden of domestic service and childcare is unrelieved either by daycare or other social agencies, which was why childcare and work was so important, or by the cooperation of, of husbands. And then finally, she talks about, about force. Um, we are not accustomed to associate patriarchy with force. Um, so perfect is its system of socialization so complete the general assent to its values so long and so universally has it prevailed in human society um, that force in general um, was, not, uh, was not felt to be necessary, women complied. And we see since she wrote this book in 1970 um, with uh, women actually breaking out of the economic stranglehold or many women at least, um, that uh, 
that that violence is now becoming um, not only more frequent, but more endemic um, in men who are angry about this. Um, patriarchal societies um, typically link feelings of cruelty with sexuality. And again, major light bulb moment. We uh, we take this for granted. We say, well, well, yeah. Um, and this is you know what we see in the violence of many young men, especially the men who who try to say that they are us. Um, but not a lot of women were seeing this at the time. And this was a very, very difficult thing um, for, for women to absorb. Um, if you looked at, uh, you know, saw articles um, on this um, back in, you know, back in the day when this book came out in reviews, um, this whole concept, that one thing um, linking, feeling, you know, that patriarchy links feelings of cruelty with sexuality was almost, you know, was rejected almost wholesale by virtually all men. And was, you know, women just completely resisted it because it is so, um, it, it, it is um, so, so awful, really. Um, and then she looks at, uh, and, and, it, and it's, and it's really, uh, none of us want to think that we uh, obey uh, voluntarily, but so many women do. She looks at anthropology, myths and religions, um, evidence from anthropology, religious and literary myth all attest to the politically expedient character of patriarchal convictions about women. Um, under patriarchy, the female did not herself develop the symbols by which she is described. The ideas which shaped culture in regard to the female were also of male design. I see um, telling this kind of running out. Um, so um, we're uh, going to go um, uh, to uh, what she talks about. Um, um, traditional like men's men's clubs, men's association, or the men's house in uh, traditional societies. Um, all you know, all the activity, the sexual activity was obviously homosexual. It's all men, um, but the uh, taboo against homosexual behavior is almost universally a far stronger force than the impulse, and tends to affect the rechanneling of the libido into violence. So there's heterosexual role playing indulged in, and still more persuasively. Um, the contempt in which younger, softer, or more feminine members are held is proof that the actual ethos is misogynist or perversely rather than positively homosexual. And that the, that men in groups, um, when they enact heterosexual roles, are doing so with um, sexuality being a question of domination and violation. And she does, uh, she does talk about... Uh, about uh, Adam and Eve, um, the myth, you know, mythology that Adam's curse was to toil in the sweat of his brow, namely the labor the male associates with civilization. Eden was a fantasy world without either effort or activity, which the entrance of the female and with her sexuality destroyed. Eve's sentence is far more political in nature and a brilliant explanation of her inferior status. The quote from, from um, the Bible is in sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. So women's, women's condemnation, women's punishment is to be heterosexual desire men and to um, have pain in childbirth. Uh, next slide, please. Um, Okay, the aspects. The aspects of yeah. Um, yeah. Next one. Here we go. The aspects of patriarchy already described 
have each an effect upon the psychology of both sexes, and the principal result is the interiorization of patriarchal ideology. Status, temperament, and role are all value systems with endless psychological ramifications for each sex. Patriarchal marriage and the family with its ranks and divisions of labor play a large part in enforcing them. The male's superior economic position, the female's inferior one, have also grave implications. The large quantity of guilt attached to sexuality and patriarchy is overwhelmingly placed upon the female, who is culturally speaking held to be the culpable or the more culpable party in nearly any sexual liaison. <clears throat> oh, Bob, moving down the quote a little bit, the continual surveillance in which women are held tends to perpetuate the infantilization of women, even in situations such as those of higher education. The female is continually obliged to seek survival or advancement through the approval of males as those who hold power. And she may do this either through appeasement or through the exchange for sexuality for support and status. Um, and you can see that uh, men obviously treat women better when they're getting, um, you know, sex from them in relationships and getting the house kept and things like that. And they can be great guys, but um, they do not treat women that well at work who they're not getting sex and emotional labor from. Um, and she uh, talks at the bottom about, um, about uh, the devastating effect um, of this, um, of even uh, being deprived of any but the most trivial sources of dignity or self-respect. <clears throat> when in any group of persons, the ego is subjected to such invidious versions of itself through social beliefs, ideology, and tradition, the effect is bound to be pernicious. Um, next slide, please. So it was hoped that a sexual revolution um, would bring the institution of patriarchy to an end, abolishing both the ideology of male supremacy and the traditional socialization by which it is upheld in matters of status, role, and temperament. And this would produce an integration of the separate sexual subcultures and assimilation by both sides of previously segregated human experience. And a related event here event here would be the re-examination of the traits categorized as masculine and feminine with a reassessment of their humor and desirability. The violence encouraged as a virile, the excessive passivity defined as feminine is really useless in either sex. The efficiency and intellectuality that supposedly make up the masculine temperament and the tenderness and consideration associated with what is supposed to be feminine really are appropriate to both sexes. Um, she's talking about um, the solution being the end of what we call gender or sexual stereotypes, um, which inevitably become a hierarchy um, with women always on the bottom and men always on the, tar on the top. To abolish this would have a drastic effect upon the patriarchal families. The first, um, the first phase, you know, in um, this kind of a revolution really can only go so far because challenging the political structures were not accompanied by habits of mind, changing hearts and minds, um, that the these habits that, you know, what is masculine and what is feminine are deeply embedded psychological conditioning, what we now call socialization. Uh, people kept thinking that male and female sex roles, gender, were somehow the way we are supposed to be. 
um, she uh, talks about, um, you know, this period of time, 1830 to 1930, and what happened. Um, and there are lots of names and dates. And and again, remember, this this book was often taught as a uh, um, as a, a whole course, so there'd be an entire lecture on this um, this uh, sexual revolution first phase. So there are a lot of names and dates, and this is not going to be a history class. But <clears throat> what was accomplished during this first phase is that women got to keep the wages they earned from work, which they couldn't beforehand. So if a woman worked at all, even if she was paid a pittance in wages, um, uh, her her husband took the money. Um, but but by 1930, women, at least in the law, um, got to keep the wages they earned from work and generally did. Um, men no longer were allowed to savagely beat their wives. And yes, domestic violence still happened, still does, but it became particularly in its worst excesses illegal. And we know that men are hardly ever prosecuted for this, but at least in law, um, it is illegal to do this now. Um, there was universal education, um, at least at, at the uh, grade school through high school level, which was uh, made available to girls, um, which might still be limited by economic class, um, but it became the law. There were women's colleges and women admitted to more and more co-ed colleges. The ability to do this was um, often class-related. Um, very, very importantly, suffrage, women getting the vote, women's suffrage. Um, we look at it now and take it as a matter of course, kind of take it for granted. But that that was a uh, um, like a, a linchpin um, that served to, to really kind of fire up a lot of a lot of the rest of these changes. And there was a first opening, again, class related of the aggressions. Um, she talks about uh, polemical, um, you know, how this was reflected polemically. Next slide. Had the older cynical expressions of male supremacy continued to carry much weight, a first phase of sexual revolution might never have taken place. Instead, the struggle was carried out between two opposing camps, rational and chivalrous, two different ways of looking at women's um, you know, liberation, especially sexually. Um, so each of these claimed to have at heart the best interests of both sexes and, and the larger benefit of society. Just as it was enlightening to contrast the chivalrous attitude with the reality of women's economic and legal situation, the result of such paternalism, it should be quite as revealing to compare two of the central documents of sexual, sexual politics in the Victorian period, Mill's subjection of women and Ruskin's of Queen Gardens. Um, compressed within these two statements is nearly the whole range and possibility of Victorian thought on the subjects. And um, I'm not going to uh, go through this again. This would be a, a lecture or two in a, in a college course. But suffice it to say that John Stuart Mill's subjection of women um, noted that women, you know, he noted the oppression of women. Um, he noted he didn't call it patriarchy, um, but he uh, um, um, knew that this was that it was wrong, at least politically. Um, John Ruskin, many of you may not have heard of, um, was uh, kind of, I call him the original woke bro. Um, he uh, was into um, uh, environment, you know, environmental uh, um, concerns as uh, as important, um, and saw that the what the industrial revolution was doing to the environment. But he thought that women um, could be happy in patriarchy. Um, and if they were just, you know, treated um, tenderly and understood that that was their role. Um, uh, he talks about uh, about Engels, 
um, you know, and uh, um, on the origin of the family, private property, and the state, um, providing the most comprehensive account of patriarchal history and economy, and the most radical for Engels alone among the theorists attacked the problem of patriarchal family organization. Um, but in tracing it back to its original roots, was baffled by one of history's conundrums, which is that um, we just don't know what really happened <laughs> um, 2,000 years ago. We have an idea, we have artifacts, um, but he, he was uh, he couldn't he couldn't prove it. He had no you know no distinct proof and um, was disregarded in um, large measure because of this. She talks then about the the counter revolution um, from 1930 to 1960. And reactionary policies to try to reestablish uh, the patriarchy. Um, she first looks at Nazi Germany, um, which uh, um, encouraged women um, to embrace Kinder, Kirscher, and Kuchen, which is basically just, you know, stay in the kitchen, have kids, and go to church. <laughs> and uh, was uh, effective uh, for a, sh a short time. Um, and she also um, talks about the Soviet Union trying to reestablish patriarchy in a political sense, um, which uh, they were not particularly successful at because the family in particular remained entrenched. And finally, she talks about Freud and his psychoanalytic ideas, which um, tried, unfortunately, rather successfully in many ways, um, to make sex roles legitimate and natural by making it all sound scientific. Um, I kind of uh, went to the last part very quick, but um, but a lot of it is uh, um, is analysis that you should that you should read. Um, if you read this book, um, I think we've gotten a um, a good uh, a good feel for the first part. This is not something you can just dip into anywhere. You want to read it starting at the beginning. Um, and if you if you've absorbed that first part, you can then look um, at all the um, historical analyses um, that she did all along the way that we've just briefly mentioned. And the last four chapters are an analysis of the works of four authors, um, which she uh, um, think, thinks illustrate very well the, uh, the the issues of sexual politics. D. H. Lawrence, um, D. H. Lawrence was an author who looked at love and sexuality in terms of power. That was that was. How all his books were Henry Miller, um, his primary um, patriarchal literary thing um, was the objectification of women for Norman Whale, Norman Mailer, sexualized male violence, very disturbing sexualized male violence, and for Jean Genet, homosexuality reflecting heterosexual roles. Um, there are, uh, I guess, about five minutes left. Um, next slide, please. A couple more slides. It's a couple of quotes from uh, from Kate Millett um, that really kind of encapsule, uh, you know, a couple of the important things that women, you know, saw um, because of this book and that radical feminism um, helped women to see. And make no mistake, um, this book, I mean, although there were women around seeing all different pieces of, of these things, Kate Millett was the first one who recognized all the pieces and put them together in this order um and could arguably this you know what she wrote um her her um her work can arguably be said to have been essentially the invention of radical feminism or one of the women back then who invented radical feminism and she noted that many women 
do not recognize themselves as discriminated against. No better proof could be found of the totality of their conditioning. Next slide, please. <clears throat> we do not like to uh, admit that um, we are conditioned and socialized, but, but we are, and Millette knew it. And because of our social circumstances, male and female are really two cultures and their life experiences are utterly different. Um, so if are there any uh, are there any questions? I tried to do the book justice. Um, all right. Um, lots of conversation in the chat, which I haven't been reading. Um, and uh, again, in the in the few remaining minutes, <clears throat> I think the uh, again. Um, the thing that I uh, um, most want to get across is that all this stuff that we look at and say, yeah, well, um, nobody was seeing this dinner then, or hardly anybody. Nobody saw all of it. Nobody saw all the pieces. She did. This was brilliant. This is a brilliant book. Um, and if you want to know, you know, and you may say, well, you know, your women say sometimes, it's well, who are you to say what radical feminism is? What is it really? Well, <laughs> it's in sexual politics. So um, if there are no uh, no further questions, um, thank everybody for being here. Highly recommend you read the book. Thank you very much, Marianne. That was totally brilliant. Um, and I'll send you the chat so you can read it later. Uh, there's breakout rooms for anyone who wants them. And see you next week for Gender Hurts. <laughs>